Art Studio for Writers presents Lit Lessons, a podcast for storytellers. From specific aspects of craft to breakdowns of well-known work in print, we talk about the inner workings of the creative process. This week, the truth in creative nonfiction, from a lecture at the Willamette Writers Conference in 2017. Today we're talking about truth in creative nonfiction, and I want to begin by showing you the books that I'm going to be working from. And one is Tell It Slant by Brenda Miller and Susanna Piola. This is the seminal text on creative nonfiction. That means it was kind of one of the first. Philip Lopate has something out as well that's actually pretty amazing. But as far as dealing with the current incarnation of the genre we call creative nonfiction and memoir, which is under that big umbrella, uh, Brenda Miller was one of the first people who came forward to talk about it in the ways we're thinking about it today, in this new incarnation of the genre. This one is The Situation and the Story by Vivian Gornick. If you haven't had a chance to see Vivian Gornick's work, amazing. And then I'm going to also look at Mary Carr's The Art of Memoir. Okay, so let's look at some quotes. My novels are 82% true, Pam Houston says, and that's the same for my, ni- my nonfiction. I like that. That's a good quote. When I think of all the stiff pronouncements I've made demanding the truth in memoir over the years, I'm inclined to hang my head. I sound like such a pious twit, the village vicar wagging her fingers at writers pushing the limits of form. That's from this book I'm passing around. So Mary Carr has evolved over this last 20 years thinking about memoir, and I really appreciated this quote, and I I agree with her. I think people who are in a genre that is an experimental genre and often a criticized genre, which I I see that. Memoir is the stepchild of writing in many ways, the unliked stepchild of writing in many cases by the critics. You can see this all the time. Every year there comes out some claim to tell the people to stop writing memoir from the New York Times or some other highbrow publication. Leave it to the experts, you people with your trivial suffering, get back to your factories. (sighs) So it makes me less than excited to talk about the fact that I'm a memoirist. I would like to enter into a form that more people liked, including myself. Um, (laughs) And so uh, I appreciate where she's at, and I agreed with her. I think, you know, I used to have a lot of really rigid perceptions about memoir, which I don't anymore after all these years. Vivian Gornick. I embellish stories all the time. I do it even when I'm supposedly telling the unvarnished truth. Things happen. And I realize that what actually happens is only partly a story, and I have to make the story. And so I think this is a very important kickoff for our conversation about truth. And what is truth? Because ultimately, that's the core of what we're going to be talking about today. Truth in creative nonfiction. According to Philippe Lejeune, his book on autobiography, the essayist pledges in some way both to be as honest as possible with the reader and to make the conversation worthwhile, worth listening to. Somebody, if they have my uh, tell it slant, I'd like you to pass that up or wave it so Chloe can um, grab it from you and I'll send it back around. But let's stop for a second and define a term. An essay is a form of creative nonfiction, 
An essay could almost be called a memoir, but essay is a little different than, somebody tell me what they think the definition of an essay is, and I'll tell you what Brenda Miller says. Anybody want to raise your hand? Yeah, there. Essay is topical on anything but that person, but not necessarily divorced. So say that a little louder. Essay is topical. Essay is topical. It's about that person, but not necessarily fixated on them? Is no, it? it's, it's not about that person, but it relates to how that person interacts with the subject. Okay. An essay has a thesis, one key main point that's being made. Okay. Okay. Anybody else want to throw out what they think? You know, and this is important because if you're working an essay, which is part of creative nonfiction, you want to know your terms, right? What am I writing? You're writing a short story. You sure want to know what a short story definition is or what the, what the industry is expecting out of a short story. Anybody else? Well, it's short. It's short. Yes, absolutely. It's short. Okay. Because I don't know. What the hell? I've written several essays, and I had no clue what I was doing. When, I, when they weren't successful, I kind of wondered, well, maybe it's because I don't know what the heck I'm doing. So <clears throat> here we have on page 91, of, and this is the second edition of Tell It Slant, by the way. If you're online and you're going to go get this at Amazon and you see a brown cover, that's the first edition. Pages are a little different. So I like to give you page numbers because you might not remember what I'm saying right now. But you will maybe uh, remember that page number. And what she says, page, page 91, uh, an essay is called a little try, to try. The word essay actually comes from the French verb meaning to try, right? So what Philip Lopate says is the essayist attempts to surround a something, and what was said up front here is right, a something, one thing. The essayist attempts to surround a something, a subject, a mood, a problematic irritation, by coming at it from all angles, wheeling and diving like a hawk, each seemingly digressive spiral actually taking us closer to the heart of the matter. So the essay writer is trying out various approaches to the subject. It's interesting, isn't it? It's a little try. That's why it's a little essay. It's a try. You're offering tentative forays into an arena where truth can be open for debate. There's some other stuff in here which is actually pretty interesting, but I, I, I think that's enough to get the wet the whistle here. Um, so he, Philip Lejeune, Philippe, Philippe Lejeune, <laughs> I am not a French major, um, he tells us this is, and this applies in my opinion to all of creative nonfiction. We are pledging to be as honest as possible with the reader, and we're also pledging to make the conversation worthwhile. So that leads us right into one of the most important things as a creative nonfiction writer in search of telling the truth. The first thing that needs to happen is a pact with the reader. And that's a pretty simple concept, but if anybody has a question about what I mean by pact with the reader, do you? It's an agreement. It's an agreement, to, like I'm making a pact with you right now. I'm going to tell you the truth as I know about the truth in creative nonfiction. And you agree to say, well, I believe she's going to tell me the truth. And how have I established that pact? Well, I've told you my background. 
I've told you that I don't like talking about it, so I've revealed stuff about myself. In fact, everything that I'm about to tell you to do in your own creative nonfiction, I've already done in the setup for this conversation, right? So all of these things increase trust because for us in creative nonfiction, we have an issue with trust because it's been abused by people in this business people who have claimed to be Holocaust survivors and you know, were surf instructors in California, people who have claimed to have been in prison and never were in, in jail even, people who have claimed to have been sexually abused or all sorts of, and never, none of those things happen. So we need to have trust with the reader and there are ways to do that. Vivian Gornick tells us the first way is the creation of a persona. I don't necessarily agree with this, but I like it enough to show it to you. This is what, and I did it in my most recent memoir, which also really brings up how slippery this is, doesn't it? Memoir slippery. Uh, I like this, and I did it in my most recent memoir. And this is a, a model of a triangle where the author sits at top, the author sits at top, and feeds information to the narrator, and the narrator is different than the author. So there's a persona that's being created by the author in some ways, or by the natural sound that's starting to come through your work. There's a voice. Blackbird, how many people read Blackbird? Not a lot, but enough. Blackbird had a voice. Every memoir has a voice, a sound. It's the truth teller sound. And it represents a lot of qualities, but it's elusive and almost impossible to define. I just know it when I hear it, for me, and when I hear it in other people's writing. It's like, that's the sound. And that therein lies the narrator, who is different from the author. The author is actually feeding information to the narrator, and the narrator is telling us about the protagonist. And in our case, the narrator and the protagonist are one. But they are separate. Because whoever you choose as a narrator is not going to be able to run the protagonist revelation unless you're doing totally present tense. And then you can merge them. But that's tricky. Because when you have present tense, you eliminate the reflective capacity. Because you're only in reactive mode, right? Everything's happening in reaction versus contemplation or taking a moment, unless you're one of those incredibly enlightened people who had an experience and immediately were able to process it in order to generate an arc, right? I'm not. So you have to create this persona that is an aspect of yourself that's a little bit beyond the experience you're writing about. This is how I would think of it. A little bit maybe a lot beyond the experience you're writing about, but not quite as evolved as the author. Right? Does this make sense? I think all of us who write memoir are creating a specific sound. And when it works, people feel like they know us. And it's like, well, actually, you know the person I created for that book. <laughs> That's a portion of who I am. It's certainly not all of who I am. I don't even know who all of who I am. I know maybe 5% of who I am, so complex. So I created a persona in Blackbird. It was a little girl telling of a tale, witnessing a series of stunning events that she couldn't possibly 
comprehend, and the reason I did it in first-person present tense is because I didn't know what I thought of those events. So there was no reflection and no processing, which a child can get away with. Some people criticized me severely, saying it's an unsustainable narrative. You can't keep with a little kid like that. It's just too painful. And I was like, yeah, welcome to her existence. That's how painful her life was. When people have come to me and said, should I write a first-person narration like you did, Jennifer? I'm like, I probably would say no. Because it's risky. Unless you find that pitch-perfect scout from Kill a Mockingbird sound, which not even she found. Her agent or editor found, right? That wasn't her first. We know now. We've read Ghost at the Watchmen, right? So... It's hard, unless you find some incredibly endearing, and that's not to say I thought Jenny was endearing. I didn't. I didn't like my narrator. I only recently have even remotely embraced that narrator. But in that case, something bigger than me came through. She needed to tell a story, and for some reason, the world heard it. I was stunned. The voice that I created for Still Waters was a continuation of that. The voice that I worked with with Show Me the Way was my befuddled mother, New mother, befuddled. (laughs) The voice I used for found was a woman who was somewhat jagged in her fury, repressed fury, about the impact of her adoption. And I needed more distance to make that narrator work. I needed more knowledge. So it didn't didn't work as well, in my opinion. And I would like to buy that book back and rewrite it. (laughs) And I might be able to do that. Chip and I are talking. So when you're reading a book, I brought four memoirs here that I, or three memoirs here that I really love and I might read a little from. I love, I just recently read this when I finished one of my drafts of my memoir because I wanted to see what was currently happening for what I consider one of the best writers of memoir out there, Paula Zicke. Paula Zicke is the author of four books, including The Famous Builder and The Burning House. He's received a ton of uh, grants, and he teaches at Rutgers, and I know him personally. He used to be the partner of Mark Doty, who is a a very high, well-renowned poet. And Paul is just a beautiful man and a gorgeous writer. So, you know, I listened to him, how he told, uh, it's called uh, The Narrow Door. I'll pass it around. How do you spell this Yeah, I'll pass it around. Here it comes. I also love Deborah Gwartney's Live Through This. Uh, Deborah Gwartney is a a local girl. She's um, married to Barry Lopez, lucky her, who also has a beautiful voice. You know, I'll read some of his work, some of his essays about his sexual trauma as a young boy. Really great stuff. Live Through This has a very interesting persona. She steps back quite a bit. She has great distance in that one. Crazy for the Storm by Norman Olstead, I think is one of the best memoirs for any memoirist to read because it teaches us so much about compelling storytelling and working with flashbacks. He's got a great voice in that too. So all of these books, there was a persona created. So if you're going to go back out and read, start reading with the question, where is the persona here? What is the persona? What is that sound? Because that sound is so unique and interesting. The next aspect of the pact with the reader is that you reveal yourself. Part of our trust in good personal essayist issues paradoxically 
from, comes from their exposure of their own betrayals, uncertainties, and self-mistrust. This is from Philip Lopate and his very thick book, The Art of the Personal Essay. And I think he is, he is a seminal thinker on creative nonfiction. If you haven't read Philip Lopate yet, get out there and start reading him because as a member of an undesirable genre, <laughs> you want to be in the know with all the people who've made it credible. He makes it credible. He, he gives us foundation. So does uh, Brenda Miller. So he's telling us, you have to reveal yourself and your vulnerabilities and your uncertainties. And that's, I'm trying to do that in this presentation, which is hard for me. Because part of my personhood is total confidence and total control. So to even give this talk, smacks me in the face of how I've established my identity, right? To reveal to you my fear, my vulnerability, my own questions, my doubts, my journey that has been an imperfect journey, is to really smack me right in the face of an identity I need to survive in lots of ways, yeah? But it works. We build more trust together, right? You feel like, oh my God, she's being real. I am. I'm being as real as I can be. And let me tell you, it's no fun. That's why memoir will drive you to the therapist's couch. <laughs> it will change you. That's why I love memoir. We're going to talk more about that in a minute. Why I hate it, and I love it. Number three on the pack with the reader. You need to become a competent writer. No other genre demands it more of you. Because it's already the stepchild. Right? Now, I've read some badly written memoirs, and so have you. I really wish the writers would have taken a little more time to just become a better writer, to do some things like understand scene, dialogue, description, point of view, specificity, concrete detail, lyric language, rather than just resting on the laurels of a sensational story. Because it's short-lived. <clears throat> it's short-lived. Oh, there's another, it's, it's almost like the Enquirer. You know, oh, three-headed baby. It's like, okay, what next? And I just feel like your life and your experience is worth more dignity than that. So take a little extra time and be a better writer. You know, that's my control freak. <laughs> but I really believe we as memoirists are as valid as any other storyteller in the genre that we have this bullshit orphan stepchild label is something we can overcome by becoming extraordinary writers, right? Just like the orphan has to overcome in many ways. We have to work a little harder. Kids, folks, friends, sisters, brothers, we do. And I really believe in that. I mean, I, that's why I, I talked yesterday about wanting to be a beautiful writer, is because I want my memoir to be taken seriously. I want my work to matter beyond something sensational and oh my gosh, and a quick conversation about what Donald Trump said next. We all know Donald Trump is gonna be yesterday's news so fast and I don't want my writing to be yesterday's news, do you? These are good questions you can ask yourself. So put in the time to be a lovely writer. And there are lots of ways to do that, and I can talk to you about it. And some of you have come to my conversations about how to do that. Um, and hopefully you'll come maybe to another conversation I have this afternoon on the antagonistic forces. Because I really believe beautiful writing can help this genre be all it's meant to be. And you need to do your part. Yeah, it's unfortunately your burden if you're going to be a creative nonfiction writer. It's your burden to know you have to do your part. 
And the reader loves you for being a beautiful writer. The reader loves it. They love that you suffered. They love that you brought the story to them. And they love that you're a beautiful storyteller. Beautiful stories just blow our minds, don't they? <gasps> you know, versus that sensational story like A Child Called It by Dave Pelzer. That's what I call a scream memoir. Like nails down there. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> Pact with the reader. Cue the reader about your struggle toward the truth with taglines like these. This is something I did not know in the year 2000. Brenda Miller's book didn't even come out until 2005. I wrote Blackbird in 1998. Where were the models for me in my memoir creation? About this kind of information, there were none. And I had an editor at Simon & Schuster. They never told me to put these things in. But later, down the line, I would be battered in the media for not putting these things in. Battered. And I felt like a failure. I failed. I was a loser. I was a, one of those memoirs who just didn't get it. Get what? There were none of these cues given to me in any of my education, or from my editors, or from my agent. So take it from me now. Do this. You do not know the absolute truth. You can't. But you can say, I imagine. I'd like to believe. I don't remember exactly, but perhaps. My brother would say, the experience was this way, but in my own memory, the experience went that way. Disclaimers. I've changed names. I've composited scenes. I've invented some details for dramatic purposes. That's risky. You know, but you want to let the reader know up front that you have done these things, that you're trying, because it shows you have integrity and humility and you recognize the limitations of the genre, which claims to be telling the truth, but the truth is not an absolute thing. So this increases your trust with the reader. Let them know. Does everybody wrote this all down? You have to take good notes because I don't have a handout. This is a brand new conversation. Now it's time to start talking about the pact you make with yourself. Yes. If you want to write something that gets published, no question. You have to build a pact with the reader, and it has to be permanent in your mind. It has to be the leading force. I desire publication, therefore I have to make a pact with the reader. But now you have to take a step back and make a pact with yourself as part of this journey. Some writers in this genre field, and it's a big one, Say nothing should be made up, and if one tiny thing has been made up, you're a liar. And that's on that end of the spectrum. <laughs> Other writers on this end of the spectrum believe that some details can be created, uh, some details can be fabricated to create scenes, composite characters, scenes, close enough details. That's the other end. Some flat out admit, I'm lying to you. I'll go ahead and just say it. I'm lying. Everything in this book is a lie. Now let's get, let's get on with the story. 
You have to go inside yourself, and Jennifer Lau cannot answer this for you, and no one can answer this for you. It's just like your moral code for living your life. Where do you fall on the spectrum, and are you willing to have that conversation with yourself? You have to have it. You can't just let it just happen, or you can't just hope someone will show you the way. You need to know where your moral fibers lie. Again, it's like becoming a better writer. You have to have a hard conversation with yourself that a lot of artists don't have to have. They just create. Anthony Doerr has this conversation. He's a, he's a novelist. He said, you know, Hilary Mantel says she will not make any aspect of history up in order to dramatize the story, therefore I won't either. So he's had the conversation with himself because he admires Hilary Mantel. However you get there, you've got to get there. And you've got to have the conversation sooner than later. I believe somewhere between these two areas, for me personally, I sometimes need to make things up in order to get to the truth. One of my teachers said, you've got to tell the lie better because a lie will tell the truth better than the truth. Well, you know, I was, but that's when I, my door is closed. When the door is closed. But at the end of the day, I know what I'm doing. I'm fabricating. Like one of the scenes I wrote for my current memoir, I wrote that I came home and I broke up shit. And I broke things up and I screamed and I threw a fit and I cried and I pounded on walls. It's a lie. I had to write that to get to the next scene, which was I wanted to do that. I wanted to do it. But I couldn't even go from I did it to I wanted to do it emotionally because... I'm changing as I'm writing. I'm growing as I'm writing. I'm coming to terms with Jennifer as I'm creating. I don't have to come to terms with a character. In many ways, fiction is easy. I don't have to come to terms with some fictional character. I've got to come to terms with Jennifer. That's a bitch of a conversation. I've got to look at her in the mirror and say, you didn't do those things. I had to write it that way. I wanted to do those things. Now, why didn't I? Why didn't I pick up the chair and break it? Why didn't I scream? Why didn't I beat something? Why? That's the truth I'm looking for, right? So I would never publish something that made that up unless I told you I made that up. I just couldn't do that. But I will change the names of characters and their describing features if my publisher tells me I have to for legal reasons. I will composite scenes to move time more quickly, and I will not probably tell you about that except in a disclaimer at the beginning. I often want to tell you the names of people. I don't want to get sued. So I do have a relationship with the editor and the publisher and their legal department. Blackbird, all the bad people's names were changed. All their descriptions, in some cases, genders were changed. They made me do that. Later, when I was stalked for seven years, by one of the characters in that book, and that included him taking over my Wikipedia page and putting a bunch of terrible stuff about me, calling my home, talking to my employers, talking to my personal friends. I mean, this man was out to destroy me. I was terrified. When it all came out, he said, I said, I changed everybody's name because my publisher told me to. He said, I don't want you to change my name. I want everyone to know who I am. Because you've lied about me, and I want them to hear my version. 
His ultimate, his ultimate argument was, your truth, your memory is different than my memory, therefore your memory's wrong. My publisher eventually said, well, why don't you just let people know that you made stuff up? And this is where I just lost my shit. <laughs> I was like, you're the ones who made me change it. Your legal department put me through a hellstorm to change everything that you're now telling me I have to stand up and admit that I made up? You helped told me to do it. It's like, oh. You can see why I don't love having this conversation. <laughs> and they agreed. My publisher said, okay, we get it. We're standing behind you 100%. We're standing behind what you've written. We get it. For somebody who's already suffering from issues of terror from a really shattering childhood, <laughs> you can only imagine how many triggers there are and were. You know, and I really struggled. I struggled. It was very painful that I have the, had the courage to write another memoir is freaking remarkable to me. <laughs> and I'm, I'm going to leave the country. <laughs> so I have a question. So in my memoir, I, I kept the names of the people that in places that it's all positive, but there's a really bad scene about something absolutely horrible that happened, and I changed the name of the place, and I changed the name of the person that did it. Is that something that's okay to do from the get-go? I think you should write it true, the first draft. The first few drafts that are for you. Write it true for you. Okay. Then get an incredible team. Get a great agent and a really solid publisher and ask those questions relentlessly. And be willing to make the changes down the line. But the integrity and the voice that you're using to create your art, just make a nice big wall around that and do your, do your hard work, and then trust that you'll have people who will help you. Because they will. But you want to get everything in writing. Yeah. What they made you do, because when um, my publisher finally turned on me, it was right after James Frey came out. And oh, yeah. everybody was freaking. It was kind of every man for himself, and that's when my publisher finally stopped. Because this guy was bombarding Simon & Schuster making, with claims that they should reclassify as fiction. It's a fiction. It's a lie. So they were fielding all of those. It's like a battle. They were fielding all of those attacks saying, we're standing behind Jennifer, we're standing behind her book. But when James Frey happened and then Oprah gave him a spanking on the air, and Oprah being the, you know, the pope of publishing, <laughs> it was like people were terrified. Publishers were terrified. And that's when I got the call from the legal department saying, and because he called right after the James Frey said and said, she's just like James Frey. And... And so they said, well, maybe you should come out with a statement that you made things up. And I said, maybe we should come out with a statement. We. Because we did this together. Oh, you can make all that go away with this. <laughs> make it all go away. Number two. Oh, I need um, my Brenda Miller book back. When you're struggling with this pact with yourself... Uh, Chloe, just hold it up and Chloe will get it. When you're struggling with this pact with yourself and you've got to make the pact with yourself, I want to offer you something that Bernard Cooper said. And it's interesting because I often go to gender here. Bernard Cooper's a man and, you know, I don't know. I, I just find men less apologetic. I'm apologetic for this breath. I'm apologetic for this presentation. I'm apologetic for everything. My fault, I'm sorry. But, you know, I often find men are like, what the fuck, who cares? That's right. David Sedaris says, you know, he lets people read, but he doesn't change a damn thing. 
screw them. And I love that. I'm like, I wish I could be more like that. Um, but I'm not. And Bernard Cooper, is he's super strong. He wrote a book called Truth Serum, which is a short series, a series of essays that talks about his coming of age in a Jewish family where, and he realizes he's homosexual. So it's a pretty big story, a coming of age story, right? That includes a huge amount of his childhood. He excludes the fact of his three brothers and poses himself as if he's a single child. That's pretty, pretty big, right? Which left, <laughs> which left him open to a tremendous amount of criticism, as you can imagine, because he had published other books that included the fact of the three brothers. So he said, I had three brothers all of who died of various ailments, a sibling history that strains even my credulity. Very early in the writing of Truth Serum, I knew that a book concerned with homosexual awakening would sooner or later deal with AIDS and the population of friends that uh, I had lost to that disease. To be blunt, I decided to limit the body count. In this book, in order to prevent it from collapsing under the threat of death. There is only so much loss that I can stand to place at the center of the daily rumination that writing requires. Only when the infinite has edges am I capable of creating art. Touche. Well done. So make your decision and stand by it. Be prepared. Be prepared to justify yourself. And he gained tremendous credibility from us memoirists and creative nonfiction writers. We're like, thank God, a competent voice, you know, a, a competent spokesperson with dignity. He's dignified in his discussion of this. And I'm, I'm proud of him. And I'm proud to be called a creative nonfiction writer next to Bernard Cooper and to call him one of my teachers. That's a post that we should put on top of all of our computers. Only when the infinite has edges am I capable of creating art. So hopefully that helps you towards this pact with yourself. Here's another pact to make with yourself. Agree, even if you do make shit up, largely in the creative process, you can do that. Make stuff up to find your way to get to the truth. But most of all, you have to agree to look at the actual lived experience in the best way you're able. If you cannot do this, the more profound meanings will remain forever shrouded. You'll never unearth the more complex truths, the ones that counter the convenient first take of the truth. This is a very beautiful statement. Because unlike other forms, I, I, I'm a novelist as in that I've written several novels, not that I've been published, so I don't consider myself a successful novelist. But I have found in writing memoir, it is a conversation with Jennifer, with even before Jennifer, the face before this face, the ultimate truth, the soul. I'm here in a human experience and lessons have been given to me, and I need to learn them because I will no longer be in this human experience pretty soon. Only have so much time, right? 
So ultimately, memoir is the act of self-knowing. And what a waste of all this hard work and all these tears if you're not going to go the distance and know the truth. So you've got to work harder. Again, there's another marker for being a memoirist requires us to work harder because we're not just telling a story. If you want to be a commercial novelist, for God's sake, go be a commercial novelist. Write about other stuff. Incorporate aspects of your truth and then call it a novelist. If you want to make money at this, go do that. But this is bigger than money. This is your soul. This is transformation, which is why I started with Down by the River. This is transformative stuff. This is God. This is huge. You're different every time you write. So agree to look at the actual lived experience in the best way you're able so you can get it. You can get all that beautiful truth. Some pitfalls in creative nonfiction. Revenge prose. I am definitely guilty of writing this. Uh, my recent book is filled still with how much I hate my ex-husband. Uh, hate. And I want you to hate him, too. <laughs> hate him with me. Be on my side because he's a... Right? Till I get through that, folks, it's not going to be a good book. So you can't be out to get someone. And you'll know when you're writing and it's all their fault, you're the big victim. And when you're pissed. When you're writing and you're pissed, you know you're in the presence of unprocessed emotion that's becoming revenge prose. Got to be real. Got to be truthful. It's okay. I'm going to tell you something profound here. It's okay to feel. Feel it. Be pissed. Break shit. You know, not over people's heads, but, you know, do whatever you can. Get a tennis racket. Beat the hell out of your bed. That's very helpful. Take a woman's strength class. Kick the shit out of something. You know, find a way to be angry. It's okay to be angry. It's human. It's normal. Under anger is deep sadness. Weep. I have laid under my desk crying more often than I can even tell you. I pulled over just to, just to sob. I could stop talking right now and just cry. Go in the corner and cry for about a half an hour. It's okay. It's normal. It's human. It's the only way you're going to transform. You've got to feel that shit. Catharsis, as I wrote in my recent book, does not come from writing a story or taking a hike up a mountain. Catharsis comes from feeling and it's the most expensive price you're ever going to pay. But you are going to be the owner of the greatest truth known to man. You've got to be with your pain. You've got to feel it. Then you're not going to be writing revenge prose. You're going to be able to take some steps back and have perspective. Not until you process that emotion. Not until you feel it. If you've got to do some therapy, do some therapy. Get a witness. Some, we often We need witnesses. Maybe that's why we write memoir. We think we're going to get a witness. We need witnesses to hold us in our pain. Find someone who can do it. It's not often our friends or our spouses. We need to find somebody who's wise, who can be with us compassionately, not fix us, let us feel. Then we move out of the realm of that horrible pitfall, revenge prose, where you can stay for many years. I know I have. The therapist couch. <clears throat> You're still in the process of processing. And you don't know how to feel or why. You're overcome with emotion. You'll know. You're just overcome. Oh, I've had so many students sit at my table, and they're just overcome. 
And I, I just love them. I just sit with them and love them and just say, I got it. I get it. Well, baby, you got to get some help. I'm not a therapist. I'm a writing teacher. You know, and we got to move on. You're, you're got passive verbs here. <laughs> structure is not working you know and then I'm the biggest asshole on the planet because I'm not compassionate you know so my job to be super compassionate I'm compassionate enough but we got a job to do I'm a writer I'm a writing teacher here's a few names of some great therapists and some great yoga teachers and some massage therapists man I have a team you cannot believe the team of support I have whatever it takes to get the job done during this book that I'm working on right now, I get a massage every two weeks. And every time my massage therapist says, we just saw you like 10 days ago, right? <laughs> How can your back be so fucked up? I'm like, because <laughs> I'm feeling so much shit. <sighs> so you've got to know these things are going to happen, and you've got to know how to be with those things. They're part of the process, and it's not bad. There's no shame allowed, no guilt allowed. It's, you're, you're human. Sorry. Some other pitfalls in creative nonfiction. You've got to be generous towards all the characters, even the ones you detest. In fact, you have to be nicer to them than anyone else. That's hard. Love your enemy. You've got to find human qualities about them. Now, I have a story that I've just written about a man who raped me when I was nine. That's why it's the hardest book I've ever written. The rape happened when I was at a summer camp, a church camp. There's a little of that rage, church camp. When I was nine, and at the moment right before it happened, I shot out of my body. My body stayed, Jennifer did not. So it had taken me all the way until last April to finally see the truth. Do I have to be nice to him? No. I'm not going to be nice to him. Nor am I going to show him as an, a monster either. I'm going to portray him as a real human being. So I'm not telling you to be ridiculous about this. I'm telling you to be reasonable about it. Your ex-husband may have been the biggest asshole, or ex-wife may have been the biggest whatever. They're still human. They still had redeemable qualities. There was a point you loved them you got to take what you feel now, set it to the side. Here's another example. I wrote Blackbird, and I loved my father. But after I researched Blackbird, I hated my father. So when I finished Blackbird, my editor said, you've got to give more love to the father. And I was like, God, I hate him so much. But I had to really put the Jennifer that knew what she knew as an adult aside and get back to that tender love a daughter has for her father. And I think I pulled it off. I had to find humanity for death. You can channel your anger into research. <laughs> Anger's a, a tough one. There's also a great book called The Dance with Anger. It's an amazing book. Anger is one of the most misunderstood emotions, especially for women. It's written for women, but I recommend everyone read it. And men, give it to your women. Um, and men, read it. Because <laughs> there's an angry woman inside of every man. It's a, we have a lot of reasons to be pissed right now. I mean, the planet is burning up underneath us. We're, we've got problems. Our mother is being killed. We're pissed. So channel some of that anger into research. The dance with anger. Harriet Werner, I want to say. Harriet Werner. Learner. Learner. Thank you. Great book. 
Get distance and perspective, and here's the rub. You're not going to necessarily get this through the passage of time. You're going to get perspective and distance by revising. In a novel, I would tell people to write three drafts, and that includes that zero draft, so really technically two. But in a memoir, I think it takes about ten, especially if it's brand new. I've been at this 20 years. I've written five of these bad boys. I've never done less than 20 revisions. Never. Because it takes that much time to know me in the process. And these have not even been that good. <laughs> so cut yourself some slack. Know it's going to take more time. At least six to 10. Double what a novelist would do because that's what it takes to get perspective and distance. Give yourself about, wouldn't you say, you've been at church for eight years, and a beautiful memoir it will be. But distance and perspective, and maturity, she has to grow through certain things, her children being older at certain phases, you know, not to make this about Chloe, but Chloe's a great example. We just need more time than other people because we're growing in the process of a creation. So get distance and perspective, by rewriting and rewriting. And that actually doesn't just come from Jennifer. That, I believe it comes from Philip Lopate, too. It's the contemplation of the material that actually creates understanding. And the rest. Give yourself six or seven weeks in between each of your drafts to get away from it. Do something else. You'll get new perspective with some time. Because you're changing as you're writing. Because we have self-reflexive consciousness, right? We change as we know. So you've got to have time to process. There's a time to do. It's like there's time to make love. And then there's a time to rest after. You couldn't make love all the time. Forget it. It's the same thing. Great. I'm sorry to put that image in your mind, but it's... You, know. <laughs> you can't. It's just... You make you crazy. They want you to, but you can't. Go for the emotional truth, that's what matters. According to Mimi Schwartz, who wrote Memoir Fiction, Where's the Line? She believes going for the emotional truth, that's what you're after, and the rest will fall into line. Now, she's one of those people that's on that spectrum. I agree. I think your emotional truth is why people read memoir. They want to know that deeper, touch-me, human truth. Why do I care? Why, how is your experience like my experience? Yeah. Untruth is simple. Making up events with the intention to deceive. So this is another way for you to check in on yourself. Am I making events up with the intention to deceive? Or am I making things up because that's what I wanted and this is how I had to write it in order to eventually rewrite it? Is it part of a creative process? Now making things up as part of a creative process, who's going to say? You, know, you can paint with your elbow if you want to. If you're a painter, that everybody would say that's wrong. But there's nothing to say in a creative process. If you want to make shit up, make it up. But when you make it up to deceive people in the final form, now you're in trouble. Okay? That makes sense? I like what Mary Carr has to say there. The last by Vivian Gornick. Truth in memoir is not achieved through the recital of actual events. It is achieved when the reader comes to believe that the writer is working hard to engage with the experience at hand. 
What happened to the writer really is not what matters. What matters is the large sense, and this is very important, the large sense, and I'm talking sense of self. What matters is the large sense that the writer is able to make of what happened. Is that a great quote? This is Vivian Gornick, The Situation in the Story. The large sense. So what she's saying here in my interpretation is she's saying you, writer, have a bigger sense of yourself as a result of the hard work that you put in trying to massage and know and be with this material that was your lived experience. So you're bigger. You're not just the victim of the experience. You have a larger sense of the self. Does that make sense? Okay, now, <clears throat> that is the end of that. Perfect timing, Jennifer. Um, that is the end of that, and we have a half an hour. Uh, I think that that's all I have to say about that, as Forrest Gump says. <laughs> um, as far as the PowerPoint goes, this is the presentation I put together for you so I could start moving this conversation forward. And now I think it would be lovely for you to tell me about some of your struggles, questions. I might tell you a little bit about the current memoir I'm working on and what I've actually come to think as a result of that, which will change my teaching at the studio. Uh, yeah, let's open it up. Let's have a conversation. Yeah. I would love to hear about your current memoir and how that's changed your thinking. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm writing... Uh, she says she wants to hear about the memoir that I'm working on. My fifth memoir, which I was never going to write, uh, begins with the scene of being at the summer camp. She's nine years old. She has been picked off by the swim instructor who has done a few things, like to the other children, so that they know that they can't help her. You know how predators do, they pick you off. So she gets picked off by the swim instructor and taken to the room where he does this thing where he turns off the light bulb. And turns, pulls his chain, and he pulls the chain and says, when the light goes off, I want you to take off your bathing suit. And when the light comes back on, I'll look at you and let you go. And he does this many times, like 20 times. So she starts to slowly go crazy because she knows she's not supposed to take her clothes off in front of a stranger. And she doesn't understand, I mean, what's happening? It's like, is it a game? Is it, what's happening? But she knows she can't fight him for some reason. So at the last time... There's something, she's crying, she's begging for him to let her go, she's terrified, of course, and um, he turns off the light for the last time, and then something larger than her just moves through her, like grace, and just says, do it, you're never getting out of here until you do it. And so she does it, she takes off her bathing suit, and he turns the light back on, and then he's naked too. And she's never seen a man naked, and it's just such a shock, she shoots out of her body. So the book starts there. And then she starts to regain her memory a few days later when her father suddenly shows up at the camp. And so the new scene opens up with her saying, I'm back, I'm back, I'm back to my body, I'm home, here. But there's this gap, something happened, I don't know what. And she wants to tell her father, because he's there. She thinks he came to rescue her, as children think. He came to rescue, he must know, because fathers are like that, magical thinking. And Unfortunately, the father's actually just there to check on the children. Her, her brother's there with her. 
and he actually starts talking to the swim instructor who raped her, and she sees them talking, and it just throws her, like, oh my God, they're friends. And then later her father says, they say you're not applying yourself at the camp and you need to try harder. And she realizes she can never tell her father. She real and so that closes the whole sequence. So that's the opening of the book. And then we move forward 25 years to my writing of Blackbird, when the memory finally returns of that moment in the summer camp. But the gap remains. And so the quest in this memoir will be to fill the gap, to find out what happened in that moment. And we meet a woman who's very unhappy, although she's presenting as a very happy person. But she knows deep down there's some broken, unhappy, miserable part, and she's faking it. So she'll go through a series of therapists. There's actually, I think, 12 therapists in this. So we're in and out of therapy office. And they're funny, because therapists are quirky. And those situations are quirky. And her, her, she's like, what the fuck are you talking about? Some people make sense. Some people are baffling. Some abuse her more. Um, one of them actually ends up entering in a romantic relationship with her and becomes her husband. And that's bad. And so she has to climb out of that. The story eventually gets, after she climbs out of that, she leaves that man. Um, she finds a series of healers who tell her to testify against that man to the Oregon Medical Board, which she does. And that begins a whole turning because now she's finally speaking the truth. And in the testifying against her husband for what he's done to her, and also her recognition, it was her responsibility to have said no, but she learns, no, that wasn't true. In fact, when you're in a treatment situation, you're as vulnerable as a child. She grows and awakens, and finally, at the end of the book, she's with a specific therapist after four years of working together, and she remembers what happened in the room. And all of those memories are told to you, which are painful, right? And then once she gets the truth, we have a series of scenes that wrap up the book that would be all the denouement, yeah? And we come to the very rap scenes, which are how she integrates this new self-knowledge into becoming a different person. And so she starts the book very afraid, terrified, self-loathing. She ends the book victorious, believing she's no longer a victim but a survivor. She actually starts helping other women through uh, women's strength programs, helping them self do self-defense. So we see a nice arc. It's a nice arc. <laughs> I've had such fun writing this book. <laughs> I'll tell you another thing. I wrote it as a novel 10 years ago. I wrote it as a novel that was about the Virgin Mary. What would the Virgin Mary do if she were one of us now? Because in my perception of Scripture then, deep down I believe Mary had been raped by God. She wasn't given a choice. She was just told, P.S., you're pregnant. And this guy, you get to marry him. I mean, she was silent. As I was taught scripture, now, of course, I've gone on to have a more mature perspective on scripture. But at that time, that was the story that was bubbling out. And then eventually I changed it, and then I came up with a narrator who would be Mary's granddaughter, who was in Italy, and I set the book in Italy 100 years ago, and Joya would be my narrator, and her task was to out the bad priest who was raping all the little girls. And I wrote that and wrote that and wrote that and wrote that and went to Italy and worked on Wild Words. So I worked on this story in some form for 10 years. I just wasn't ready to tell 
Then I fictionalized the memoir. I did that for another six months. And then finally I was like, okay, just write the damn thing straight. And it was Chip, actually, who I was so frustrated. He said, you're a memoirist, write a memoir. I like, don't want to, don't make me, don't make me, don't make me. And he's like, I'm not making you. You're great at this. Do it. And so I wrote it, and um, I love it. I, I love it. I mean, I love it, and I hate it. We'll see, you know, what happens with it. So, so one second. I just ask one follow-up. You yeah. mentioned that you had just gotten some notes just a yeah. couple days ago. Is that gonna the the question in the notes was, um, we need to see her more fucked up. He didn't use those words. I do. Um, we need to see Jennifer more struggling more, which was, yeah, and we need to know why she's going into therapy. Why? Oh, I didn't put that in there. Oh. I tell everybody to do it in their class. <laughs> class, why are we in this scene? What's going on? What does the writer want? Um, but apparently I missed that. Uh, I thought I had it. Chloe said I had it. And my other friends said I had it. But that's why you don't give your writing to, re to, writing to friends. You give it to your... You know, and Chip was right, and my editor was right. You know, so it's just little tweaks, little tweaks in the back. There was a hand. Yeah, yeah there you go. Just following up on the way you told the story, I mean, you were telling it in third person, and I've never read a memoir in third person as if it's a novel. So you sort of answered it because you've taken it through the whole novel and tried to present it. Did it get back to first person? Oh, it's not in third person. Okay. I'm talking about myself in it. Okay. It's painful to say me. You know, it's still over here. I've written it um, in third person. I've written it in third person. I've written it in first person present. I've written it in third, third person past, third person present, first person past, first person present. <laughs> it's now first person present. No, first person past. I can't write my lived experience for the first two or three passes unless it's first person present. There's an, a voice that exists in that place for me. I love the sibilance of the S sound that comes from first-person present. Um, it just it has a momentum. But now it's first-person past because it allows me the reflective capacity. And really good story is action, reflection, which apparently I didn't do enough of. Right? <laughs> but that's an easy fix. The whole story is there. That's what Chip said. He says, it's going to be amazing. It's a beautiful book. It just, you know, you got to make another pass. So that was, thank you. Thank you. And wait a minute, Jennifer, and then you. Okay, Jennifer, did you have a oh, question? Oh, just when you finally accepted that that was your genre, then how quickly, was it like, okay, easy, just change the tense and, and write the rest of the story? No, I had to read, I made everything up, so I had to go back. I sensationalized for the novel, right? I can't do that in a memoir. I don't fully accept I'm still a memoir writer. Um, and I'm one of those people that walks between the line. You know, I used to be a motherless daughter. I was adopted into a family. I didn't know I was adopted. I believe that was my mother. My mother died. I was a motherless daughter. I've reunited with my mother now. I'm not a motherless daughter. I have a mother, but I am a motherless daughter, right? So I feel that way about memoir. I am a memoirist, but I want to be a novelist, and I've written novels, so I'm a novelist. I prefer not to even be associated with memoir. I'd rather write a novel. But I love memoir. You know, it's love. So I'm going to be both, and I'm going to be a poet, too. <laughs> Damn it. I'm going to do it all. But the one thing I can say is I love writing, and I didn't know that when I started my journey as a memoirist. I had to write. That's different. I find people who come to memoir have to write memoir. They have to write. 
Novelists, they want to write. Poets, sometimes they want to write. But memoirs, we have to do it. Something in the soul is craving, craving something. For me, in this past, in this life, I was craving some edifying knowledge that would take me on my journey beyond this life. I believe that, totally. Being a Buddhist, yeah, totally believe that. Uh, but now I'd like to have some fun. That's not something I've actually done yet. I'm 52. I don't even think I had fun as a kid. So I'm going to start having some fun. And I think writing can be fun. <laughs> I'd rather do that for a while. So I will be a novelist, maybe. Short story writer. Flash forms, poetry. We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> After I do this draft, which will freaking kill me. But that's okay. Over here. Yeah, I have a question. As a memoirist, I think it's hard because you're telling a story that also includes people in your family, people you that are going to read it and know you're writing about them. Right. And growing up in a family where it was all about appearances, and now here's the truth, um, have you ever had to like deal with that? Or how, how do you get past that, oh, I can't really say that about mom, or I really shouldn't say that, I'm going to read that. Yeah. Now, how do you get past that feeling? Well, for the first few passes, close the door. And they're not allowed in there. Don't let your family in there, even in your mind. Just tell your truth. You live. You're here. Right. You have a valid right to your story, yeah. right? And your perception of your experience. There's a great book called Creativity Versus Conformity by Clark Moustakas. Now, it's this impossible book. I have mine. The paper is literally crumbling. But it's a book that an, a dancer gave me once, many, 25 years ago. It's almost impossible to find. Creativity versus conformity. And it really just hammers down the right to our experience. And when you're in a culture that says no, in order to succeed in a cultural context, you need to blend, go along, that superego stuff, you know, do the right thing for the community. But we're individuals in American society in the West, Western Hemisphere, so we're not Chinese or Japanese. We don't have to do all that conforming. We are individuals. We have a right to our experience, and there's a reason for that. I think each of us has different cultural backgrounds, so you're part of that tradition. So conformity versus creativity versus conformity really discusses the power of the collective to mute our truth, and that's not helpful and the right to the truth means the right to close the door to the family. Now, how do you deal with the family once you've got your great big publishing deal? Well, what a problem to have, right? That's a lovely problem to have. If you want these people to stay in your life, you probably, I like to let people I know read my books. I'm like, I let my, one of my ex-husbands, I've been married three times. Um, I let one of my ex-husbands, the father of my children, read my work. And if he has an opinion, I put it in. Because I love him, and I love that we made children together. And even though he's been a son of a bitch, and he would totally admit it, he wants his point of view in there. So I'll add it, because I think he's worth it. I let my children read everything. And if they don't want things in, I pull it, because I want them in my life forever. Right? People I don't care about, I don't care. Because <laughs> I didn't care, you know, I, we're not going to have a relationship. People I'm on the fence with, you know, spiritual teachers I've had read, found, I've lost two serious relationships with spiritual teachers based on their reaction. But I pulled the chapters for them. So... Did you do that before? After. Or at, like, after you had a publishing deal, you said, I have to pull yeah, these? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. After I had a deal. Um, when I knew I was being published. 
because I wanted them to know. I mean, if you want to preserve relationships, you have to make, that's a pact with yourself. Like, how far? David Sedaris says, I let everybody read, but I don't change a thing. I think Mark Doty says the same thing. Paul Lizicki, too. So each of us, you really, I don't think getting into it with people during the creative process is a good idea. You got to tell your truth. Being swayed by who you want to keep, who you are afraid to lose, that really, st- that'll add a year, that'll add a couple of years to your process. So leave it alone. Close the door, shore yourself up, tell your story to yourself, right? If you really want to fact check some things, talk to your mom, then fact check some things. You know, is that helpful? Okay. What else? Big conversation, isn't it? Yeah. You were talking about the difficulty you had when the publisher had you change names and everything, and what everything that came about that. If you put a disclaimer, should you change names? Uh, I'm going to put a disclaimer because I don't want to get sued. I don't have proof that I was abandoned in a cult commune. You know, I wasn't carrying my video recorder around mm-hmm. when I was seven or eight. So that's a legal claim, a, a, a claim of a crime against the person I'm writing about, and because I don't have proof, I do have to make changes. Because it could, I'm making a claim I can't prove. So I will still put a disclaimer. They're giving me, uh, there's a 20 year uh, revision, anniversary edition coming out, I get to revise it. And I will put a revision, I will put a disclaimer, and I will make revisions in the book. So is it safer then to change names and put a disclaimer, or just put the disclaimer and keep... I would do both based on what my lawyers tell me to do. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. I wish they would have told me to put a disclaimer along with making all the changes. Right? I don't think anyone anticipated that this much, this guy would take this campaign on. You know? I, and nobody anticipated... I mean, memoir is that newest of a genre. Mm-hmm. Thank you. The, that we really don't know what people are going to do. Now we've been at it for 20 years. We kind of get an idea. So legal t- teams have changed. I just say, whatever you're going to do, put it in writing from the publisher so that later when shit comes down, you know, public opinion sways so fast based on the internet. I mean, it moves quick. You've seen it, right? One second, boom. Everybody hates Brock Adams. One second, right? So it was different 20 years ago. And a lot of people think that everything on the internet's true. (laughs) <laughs> but we've now come to realize it wasn't. At the beginning, we did, though, just because it was a printed form. Now we're starting to question, right? Don't let your kids self-diagnose on the Internet. It's a nightmare, right? Yeah, yeah. It seems to me that what I'm hearing underneath the very important, significant things you're talking about today is a practical issue, and that is don't self-publish this stuff. I wouldn't. Exactly. I'm hearing that. And yeah, just I would not self-publish unless yeah. you've got an incredible team yeah. that checks and double-checks and triple-checks. I, I sort of, that, I was Plus, self-publishing gives you permission to publish crap. Yeah. And people think, well, I haven't written a bad book. I'm a fabulous self-published writer. And I'm like, you are often deluding yourself. I'm not saying you're not. But if you were talking in a professional status about your work and we went through it, uh, I've met, but everybody loves my book. Okay, whatever. <laughs> if the scenes aren't there, the arc isn't there, the structure isn't there, you know, and you put out a memoir that's just a big confession, 
I'm not telling you not to self-publish. I'm saying get people who will triple, trouble, quadruple check you. You know, because you'll regret it ten years down the line or two years, hell, six months. You know, when you practice on your blog, go get a blog. Everybody start a blog. And throw stuff on the blog. And then see how you feel three days after you hit that publish button. Thank God you can delete it. Right? But that's a feeling. And sometimes we can only know until we experience something in our body. Right? It's one thing to be out here in the pie in the sky abstract. But then we feel it. It's like, oh, Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Any other questions? Yeah, please. I, I have found when I write my memoir, there are times where I have to like do it when absolutely no one's going to see me for like six hours. And my tears like hit my computer. i got to keep a rag. So, <laughs> it's like really... Take a break. Yeah, it's Hold really on. crazy. So I'm wondering, I, there's one chapter I have to write that's really holding up finishing the book. It's the absolute hardest chapter to write. How do you, or how did you pull through that oh my gosh, I have to write this, but this is, this is like the deepest thing I'm going to have to write. Well, I don't drink anymore, so I, I, would, I used to say, I used to say I drink through it, and I eat chocolate through it. I don't do either of those things anymore. No sugar, no gluten, no alcohol. Um, my adrenals are crap. You know, I used to exercise through it. You can't do that anymore. Freaking, you know, it's amazing what gets taken away as we age. So I can't, I clean, I clean quite a bit. I massage, I clean, I still do that. They haven't taken that from me. Um, <laughs> I wish they would. Yeah, I wish they would. Um, yeah, and I don't have rage attacks against my friends and family anymore. Um, I think you just do as much as you can outlining, you know. I outline, sometimes I just take breaks. I do a few, and then sometimes I just have to hold myself and cry dry my tears and then keep writing the only victory in that is I know I've written one hell of an emotional truth and it's going to be no tears for the writer no tears for the reader (laughs) boom my goal is to get published so I did it you know it's not fun people will say and sometimes I'm reeling you know I'm like oh man what a hard day I had today the day that I finally saw all these memories I mean, for six months, I could barely say my name. I couldn't even move through an hour without weeping. Just to see what she had, I had gone through. Now I can say me. What I had lived through was so painful. Because I had spent my whole life saying it happened to some other girl. Right? I could feel it maybe five years or ten years ago when I was doing some therapy. I could feel it if I imagined my daughter was going through it. But I couldn't feel it for Jennifer. So there was so much work I had to do to care about myself. And I think really that's important. To care about yourself is to also know what you're capable of taking in the process of creating. And because often we don't care about ourselves deeply, we push ourselves too hard. Right? So I I mean, I really had to go slowly into that dark night. I didn't want to at first. I just wanted to rip that fucking band-aid off and just go. And when I did that, and it was bad, I wanted to kill myself once I saw just a, a hint of the truth. I, I literally pondered suicide. Had I not had children, I don't think I'd be standing here, which breaks my heart. It breaks my heart to think that those memories were so painful that rather than 
being with them, to be in that dark place, and to feel them, I would have taken my life. You know, I understand now why my brother killed himself. I understand suicide in a way I've never understood it before. Thank God I had children. Thank God the universe gave me my beloved children. So I knew Lit I had Lessons is a podcast production of the Blackbird stuff. Studio for Writers. Right? This is not, Find out more this is not about our stuff. immersion studies at blackbirdstudiopdx.com. So the, the music for our production was provided by the Dimes. Thank you, you for listening. You do meditation, you call on God, whatever you do to, to hold yourself in, on, in your body, on the earth, being here. You're not going to be happy. It's going to take a while. <laughs> but I tell you, after five memoirs and 20 years on this journey, I'm free in a way I've never been free. I'm full of faith in a way I've never been full of faith. And I know I can die a good death. When I finished my book two weeks ago, I was like, I can die now. I can die a good death because I've done it. I've done the work I came here to do. I used to love the novels. No, but this was it. This was it. This is why I came to this life.